Greetings, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland. I am beyond a top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities. Top secret military technologies. The reality of extraterrestrial Alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond a top secret Texan podcast. Continuing. Reading Michael Aquino's Mind Star. This is the third reading of this book that is a spiritual, scientific manifesto of the Temple of Set intended to initiate one into both the core concepts and ultimate mission of the Temple of Set its spiritual reason for existence as well as serve to justify and explain Not only its creation, but necessity, both historically and in a new modern world context. Please, if you haven't already listened to it, go back to parts one and two. This will be the third hour of reading of the Mind Star book. E. Historical non-telos determinism. As noted above, the alternative to mechanistic free will is determinism, which, as the term implies, denies all conscious volition in the outside universe which includes all human activity. This is the cold, dead extreme of existence in which there is nothing but cause-effect existence, stimulus-response, all of which were one to take all factors into account results in inevitable, predictable outcomes. Determinism became fashionable in the scientific community with the advent of Newtonian physics, which enthusiasts sought to extend beyond mere natural phenomena to all event interactions, including those of human beings. This resulted in the notion that human thoughts and emotions could not just be predicted but controlled by identifying 
and manipulating the environmental, physiological, and psychological factors that govern them. On the scale of human communities and nations, determinism was loosely presented in the East in such concepts as Taoism, in which the universe and everything in it rolled inexorably onward through time, with everything in it locked to that mechanism. There is accordingly no personal discretion possible for Taoists. The most one can do is to sense and harmonize with the Tao, so as not to be overwhelmed by it. In the West, determinism got off to a slow start, because it was antithetical to established religions, principally Judeo-Christianity, and their belief in a creative and active God, and of course in the related belief that his human creatures had brought original sin upon themselves through Adam and Eve's making a free will choice. If there was no need for God, and if A and E, Adam and Eve, had no responsibility for an inevitable choice, then the entire religious control system evaporates. There is no deity to be vengeful, no humans deserving of vengeance, with the enlightenment and the eclipse of literal religious belief, however, came the notion that there was a predictability, a mechanism in human affairs. This was associated with another superstition, not superstition, but supposition, that history was progressing through time from the primitive to the sophisticated. Interpretations of these perceptions would take several forms, from the abstract to the neo-religious. Empiricism, from David Hume, is the father of modern empiricism, which holds philosophical and political values to be determined by habits and by their apparent utility, not by abstracted virtues or ideals. Cosmologically, Hume adhered to deism, the mere existence of a political system or institution according to this approach demonstrates that it has a part in God's overall scheme of things. If it didn't have such a part, it wouldn't have come into existence. What that scheme might be is not addressed by Hume, hence political philosophy and systems cannot be measured critically according to it. Looking at the human mind, Hume sees perceptions, which consists of impressions. When we hear, see, feel, love, hate, desire, or will, and ideas, when we reflect upon a passion or an object which is not present. Impressions are more strong and lively than ideas. All ideas are derived from impressions, as a blind man cannot have an idea of a color, nor a deaf man has an idea of music. 
So we can never think of anything that which we have not seen or otherwise physically sensed without us or felt in our own minds. We cannot have factual knowledge of anything which cannot be conceived otherwise. Since it is possible to think that the sun will not rise tomorrow, we cannot know that it necessarily will. The laws of nature which says that it will might change between now and then. Mathematics and geometry are examples of things in which principles cannot be conceived otherwise. One cannot think of a triangle whose internal angles do not add to 180 degrees. What Hume is getting at is that much of what previous philosophers had considered necessary cause and effect relationships is not that at all, but simply habits. All reasonings about causation are nothing but the effects of custom, and custom has no influence but by enlivening the imagination and giving us a strong conception of any object. When considering value, virtue, and vice, Hume starts with the notion that they must either be relations resulting from the comparison of ideas or factual matters, inferences. He finds that he cannot accept them as either. Therefore, they are simply irrational, non-factual, passions. Hume sees reason as a device used to satisfy passions, not something which is superior or prior to them. Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions, and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Hume considers the morally good as what one ought to do according to prevailing passionate custom. It cannot be ascertained by dispassionate reasoning. Reason may be used to discover the fitting, the most practical or sensible approach, but not the morally good. Hence, virtue and vice are products of sentiment. Virtue is not approved because it is a virtue. It is considered to be a virtue because it meets with passionate approval. The good is identical with the pleasant, but not necessarily with one's own immediate personal pleasure. Examples of what Hume considers virtues. Equal. Useful to others. Justice. Generosity. Beneficence. Honesty. Two. Useful to the self. What's prudent, frugal, temperate, and industrious. Pleasant to others. Modesty, wit, and decency. 4. Pleasant to the self. Self-esteem and glory. We approve of such virtues because we are moved by a sense of humanity or benevolence. This is not a natural instinct, but rather the result of sympathy which humans feel for one another. A transference of the applicability of others' predicaments into one's own frame of reference creates social justice and is sought not out of simple, direct self-interest, but rather because we feel that even remote injustices will act to harm the cooperative society. Hume's objection to social contract theory is that he thinks it is simply historically false. 
Rulers don't consider their authority as based upon the consent of the ruled, nor do subjects feel sovereign. Hume also objected to social contract theory on the grounds that it was based upon reform of humans by reason. Hume argues for strong governments and the preservation of systems based upon their historical durability. He is thus a conservative. The Christian political thinkers had God-slash-Christ-based values. The social contract thinkers had reason-based values. Hume has endeavored to deal with politics by ignoring the former and denying the actual validity of the latter. He thus finds himself in a no-man's land of subjective opinion. His somewhat clumsy solution is to endorse and preserve values simply because they have been around for a long time. Strict conservatives tend to be Hume-like, just as radicals tend to be oppose, or tend to oppose values based upon non-rational sentiment, and to favor ideals based upon reason. This is not to say that much of their reasoning isn't guilty of the weaknesses which Hume identifies. Dialectical idealism. Europe in the early 19th century was influenced significantly by budding forces of Romanticism, Nationalism, and Liberalism. The first represented a rejection of the cult of reason espoused by the social contract theorists of the Enlightenment. In favor of a more emotional approach to social and cultural issues. The second represented a growing identification of the individual within a nation or a state as opposed to a city or a monarchy. This was particularly significant in the cases of Germany and Italy, which until now had remained largely fragmented. The third represented the general impatience with the archaic aristocratic systems as justified a state's existence. The Enlightenment and the Age of Revolution had opened the door to critical analysis of state systems, not just to their glorification. George W. F. Hegel developed his theories of dialectical idealism and organicism by approximately the year 1816 A.D., when he held a professorship at the University of Heidelberg. His two principal concepts are defined as follows. Hegel conceives the universe as the manifestation of God's mind seeking complete self-realization through the process called dialectical idealism. This is occasionally and more precisely called the dialectic of absolute spirit. As applied to earth, it is the concept that the history of the world consists of part of the spirit of God manifesting itself through the collective spirits of mankind, moving onwards through logic, the dialectic, towards complete self-understanding. An existing idea thesis is criticized and partially refuted by its opposite, antithesis, resulting in a more perfect concept, synthesis. The organic state is the manifested a manifestation or appearance of God in the material world. It is not identical with God. It is a reflection of the dialectic of his mind. 
Accordingly, it proceeds in ways and towards goals which are not necessarily the sum of the total ways and goals of the individual human minds within it. In many ways, Hegel is a reaction, antithesis and synthesis to Immanuel Kant. Bishop Berkeley's subjective idealism had held the notion that nothing could be known objectively, that knowledge is limited to subjective impressions. Kant refines this into what is called critical idealism in which human consciousness is subdivided into sensation, understanding, and pure reason. Sensations and understanding of them and consequences of them can be proven, Kant says, but pure reason, concepts unsupported by sensations, cannot be conclusive. It is beyond causality. Hegel overcomes Kant's problems by making pure reason a necessary and intrinsic characteristic of God, the universe. All history is logical. If it sometimes seems illogical, it is because we don't see it as clearly and comprehensively as God does. The task of philosophy, therefore, is one of the understanding of logical analysis and not one of creation of abstract ideal political systems. Heeg further introduced the concept of the phenomenology of mind as a variation on the platonic pyramid of thought concept. With Hegel, of course, the mind develops forward through time, historically, whereas with Plato, the levels of thought are measures of, excellent irrespective of or excellence irrespective of time or progression. Hegel's phenomenolo- phenomenology of mind begins with consciousness, which is everyday experience, action, in his Republic, Plato stratifies, oh, sorry, um, and reaction to events without self-consciousness. We take the truth of conscious experiences for granted. Hegel calls this sense certainty. As soon as one pauses to reflect on conscious experiences, one moves to self-consciousness. At the same time, there comes an awareness of other selves, other minds. This is very close to Hobbes' concept of the state of nature. The antagonism is because they exist and are not me. Therefore, I wish to control them and not to be controlled by them. I wish to recognize, or I wish recognition by them. I do not wish to recognize them in return. Thus, there comes into being the political master-slave relationship. The next step in the dialectic involves a personal internalization of the master-slave relationship, as exemplified in Hellenistic Stoicism and skepticism. The inconsistencies this produces between internal and external life goes on to produce the rages and hypocrisies of medieval Christianity. In the Reformation, the internal as seen as relevant to and in command of the external, there is still the problem of conflict between individual wills, which, if undisciplined through organization and government, would run wild in anarchy since any institution whatever is antagonistic to the abstract self-consciousness of equality. As consciousness gives way to self-consciousness, questions of morality arise in contrast to customs or social conventions, how to aspire to morality. 
The answer is that one apprehends it through the modern state. Hegel's concept of the state is that it is the embodiment of the spirit of those who constitute it. Its leaders must consider this spirit and not simply their own desires when guiding it. Correspondingly, individuals must seek in this spirit a guide for their personal morality. Human society is an artificial machine which works for the goals of the spiritual state. Individualism and rights against the government are considered by Hegel to limit freedom. Since they reduce the scope and power of the whole, they serve to limit possibility. Similarly, Hegel feels contempt for democracy. It reduces questions of relevance to the state to resolutions by simple counting of noses, i.e. voting, in which all opinions are not of the same intellectual merit. Hegel prefers a monarchy. This this preference is a weak area of his thought since it is not really justified. Why should an accident and a birth make one any better a judge of the Volksgeist, the people? Their Hegel had no absolute values. Values are products of history. They are validated by their success. Thus, Hegel overcomes Hume's objections to morality. The social contract theorists, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, felt that man made the state. Hegel reversed this, saying that the state is prior to man. He thus conceived the most advanced and complex metaphysical statement of man as a product and subject of his environment, unlike B.F. Skinner and other environmental materialists. However, Hegel postulated a deliberate universal intelligence behind the historical process. Will to Power Frederick Nietzsche, 1844-1900, a completed and published his major theoretical works, also, uh, also spake Zarathustra and Beyond Good and Evil, circa 1885. He was an atheist and a materialist, insisting that the universe, or world of appearances, is the only true one. He carries this principle into his assessment of humanity by denying any dual existence within the body, i.e. soul versus physical body. Man is a unified material being. Nietzsche defines the will to power as an inherent compulsion of any being to create and control its environment and interactions with other beings. Its ultimate expression in society is the creation of values by which other beings will live and be governed. Nietzsche attacks the Hegelian view of rational history asserting that it is full of blindness, madness, and injustice. By attacking history as God, of course, Nietzsche attacks any demonstrations of God which are justified by the rational, logical, historical dialectic. Past events, says Nietzsche, are valuable to the extent that they serve as a monumental models of past greatness, antiquarian mementos of tradition, and objects for critical analysis leading to the destruction of erroneous values in favor of the construction of better ones. Abuse of the first leads to the mistaken identity and the idea that the past can and will come again. Abuse of the second leads to detachment from the present. Abuse of the third leads to the pessimism wherein one sees only the failures of things unconsciously neglecting their positive legacy. Nietzsche interprets Hegel as saying that history had now reached its perfection in the contemporary German state system. Nietzsche saw danger in this because it would lead to a lassitude on the part of modern man. 
who would feel there is nothing more to be done? Compare the last day sects of early medieval and modern Christianity as well as the ecological doomsday ideologies of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Man differs from other animals, says Nietzsche, in that he has power to create horizons, to construct visions, ideas, and ultimately philosophical systems. These horizons are meaningful to him unless he perceives them as artificial constructs. In that case, he either destroys them in a favor of a newer, larger horizon, or degrades himself by an artificial, hypocritical self-limitation to a horizon he knows is false. Plato is wrong, Nietzsche says, and assuming there to be absolute values, the theory of the forms, it is rather the case that all truths are situational and relative. Hence the great virtues are supra-rational. They cannot be explained by logic, as Nietzsche accuses Socrates of trying to do. Nietzsche is wrong. The Platonic dialogues provide for Noah a apprehension of the forms, not logical constructions or anal analysis of them. Moreover, a form is not a static concept. Nietzsche's attacks on Hegel and Plato leaves his man a very naked and self-dependent position. He has no gods, no values, no progressive history, nothing external to help him. This disillusioned, he is strongly tempted to abandon all aspirations and live only for self-gratification and physical comfort. Creature comforts. This is Nietzsche's last man. He seeks neither power nor social inequality. He wants society leveled. Everyone the same. We have invented happiness, he says the last man, and they blink in approval. Nietzsche considers Marx to be the prophets of the last man. Ideological, Nietzsche lashes out at the states of his time because he feels that they are tending towards the last man condition. This is also the essential objection to Christianity and democracy. They destroy man's creative powers and opportunities to distinguish himself in society. As the democratic world becomes more cynical of governments and disillusioned by religion, it will gradually polarize into haves, bourgeoisie, and have-nots, the socialists. There is no justification for the acquisitions and possessions of the bourgeoisie. They result from petty self-gratification. What the bourgeoisie actually fear from socialist movements is that they will take the acquisitions and possessions. Nietzsche has comparable contempt for the socialist radical left because they insist on ignoring the actual inequality of man. Hence, the ideal socialist state is simply a tyranny of the most inferior and the most stupid. Since all ideals, all horizons have been shown to be false. The creative individual reacts against this intolerable movement towards the last man syndrome with an impulse of nihilism. Nihilism, as Nietzsche conceives it, is a psychological sickness, a tendency towards self-destruction born of resentment of one's perceived impotence in the face of a terrible, degenerate, and yet seemingly inevitable future. This nihilism, continues Nietzsche, is false and unnecessary. It is caused by moral training, in particular of Christianity, which suggests that we must be forgiven for our existences, that life is a burden, and that self-love is sinful. 
one must wrench oneself free of this spirit of gravity and unleash one's creative capability, the will to power. He who successfully accomplishes this is a Nietzschean Superman, an Ubermensch. The Superman is not necessarily a political leader or a despot by nature, though he will be the architect of values by which society lives. He is a horizon maker, a supremely creative artist. He is not the product of any particular country or race, but rather of a purely mental evolution unique to man. Nietzsche considers war to be an energizing, revitalizing influence in politics, deterring the otherwise sluggish descent towards the last man syndrome. For the present, wars provide the greatest agitation of the imagination after all Christian raptures and horrors have grown stale. But Nietzsche does not love war for its destructiveness, he says, and perhaps a great day will come when a people distinguished through war and victories voluntarily proclaim, We break the sword, disarming oneself from an intensity of feeling. While one is the best armed, that is the means to real peace. Yet Nietzsche does not hold out much hope for a rescue of humanity by his supermen. Around him he sees only the march towards the last man, leading to a succession of several martial centuries that have no equal in history. We have entered the classical age of war on the largest scale, the age of scientific war with the popular national support. Looking ahead, he sees signs of the next 20th century, the entrance of Russia into a culture, a grandiose goal, the proximity of barbarism, wakening of the arts, magnanimity of the youth, and fantastic madness of its people. Four, dialectic materialism. The European Industrial Revolution, which created the conditions conducive to the onslaught of modern capitalism, labor, socialist developments, began in England at the start of the 19th century. The move towards industrialization spread to Belgium as a consequence of English investments in that country, and France and Germany experienced their major industrial booms between 1830 and 1870. Sweden, Denmark, and the Low Countries followed during the period 1871 and 1914, as did Austria, Bohemia, and Russia. By the period just prior to World War I, the principal countries which were still essentially pre-industrial were Hungary, Italy, and Spain. During the 1870s, a gradual transition could be seen from individual entrepreneurship to various forms of industrial combinations and conglomerations, we would know as corporations. Government aid to such industrial enterprises was also a new development, consisting of a gradual liberalization of corporate law and the institution of protective tariffs in order to help protect building national industries against competition from further developed foreign ones. By the 1890s, England, Belgium, and Holland were the only countries still observing a free trade policy. 
the consolidation and organization of business encouraged by example the organization of labor. Labor unions first began to experience general legal toleration in France in the period 1864 through 1884, in England in 1871 through 1875, and in Austria in the early 1870s. The first international labor organization, the International Workingmen's Association, the first international, was founded in London in 1864 and existed until 1876. When it dissolved due to a split between the anarchist faction of the Buchanan and the socialist Marxist factions. In 1889, the Second International came into existence, but it did not survive World War I. Marxism, sometimes called dialectic materialism, to distinguish it from the dialectic idealism of Hegel, is a theory and a practice of socialism, including the labor theory of value, dialectic materialism, economic determination of human actions and institutions, the class struggle as the fundamental force in history, and a belief that increasing concentrations of industrial control in the capitalist class and the consequent intensification of class antagonisms and of the misery among the workers will lead to a revolutionary seizure of power by and the dictatorship of the proletariat and to the establishment of a classless society. Karl Marx was strongly influenced by Hegel, but believed that Hegel had made a fundamental mistake in using nations as the basis for his dialectic and relating to a divine manifestation of purpose. Marx considered the dialectic to be a function of economic struggle between social classes and he denied the existence of any supranational intelligence, calling all religion the opiate of the masses. According to Marx, one cannot choose one's social class. Rather, one is placed into a particular class by the forces of economics, particularly the means of production. As more and more economic power becomes concentrated in the hands of the upper class, the bourgeoisie, the middle class will disappear, leaving only a large and impoverished working class, the proletariat, opposed to the bourgeoisie. Eventually, the strain between these two classes will lead to revolution, resulting in a classless, utopian society. From each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Marx called this end result socialism, but it was ultimately called communism. As a general rule, socialism means ownership of the means of production by the state, while communism means ownership collectively by the proletariat. Essential to Marxism are the concepts labor theory of value and theory of surplus value. The labor theory of value suggests that the value of an item results from the quantity of labor necessary for its production in a given state of society under certain social average conditions of production with a given social average intensity and average skill of a labor employed. Members of the proletariat sell their labor power, the ability for, to labor for a specific period, to employers from the capitalistic bourgeoisie, but they are not paid the entire value of their labor. The part that is not paid to the laborer is called the surplus value. 
the capitalist keeps the surplus value as his profits. As smaller competitors are driven out of business, the capitalist faces increasing pressure from larger competitors, since the cost of producing similar goods is more or less the same. Trying to undersell competitors is not effective in the long run. The only way the capitalist can increase his profits is to pay the workers less and less. As the worker realizes that he is being exploited, he will develop class consciousness and ultimately revolt. As economic forces and not ethical values determine relationships in a capitalistic society, Marx charges that capitalism dehumanizes mankind, causing insecurity, fear, and self-alienation. Unable to find value in other humans, victims of self-alienation find it in produced goods. A phenomenon which Marx calls fetishism, the love of possessions. Marxism began the transition to what is called Marxism-Leninism at the turn of the 20th century. Vladimir Lenin is what to be done. Pamphlet was published in 1902. Lenin's form of communism argued for a speeding up of the Marxist process via the dictatorship of the proletariat, as well as for the establishment of a revolutionary socialist state prior to the utopian state of pure communism. Marx's utopian society would require perfection in its citizens. This contrasts with most other political ideologies, which are geared to deal with enduring imperfections in human relationships, hatred, greed, selfishness, sloth, power, lust, etc. Marx, like Hegel, based his ideas on a necessary, inevitable force of history. Thus, communism would eventually come no matter what capitalism tries to do to stop it. The other side of this coin is that there is nothing would-be communists can do to speed it up. Their society must first evolve to the last stages of capitalism. The first country to embrace communism, Russia, was not in an advanced state of capitalism, nor have been the other countries which have become communist. Lenin modified Marx, Marxism-Leninism, with the concept of the state-embodied dictatorship of the proletariat. The running of the country by a communist party elite until its economic systems could be advanced to full communism. The state apparatus would then wither away. It is noteworthy that power is addictive and no temporary communist governments have shown any signs of withering away. Marx conceived communism as supernatural. Assuming the nation-state system to be a device for economic and class inequality and exploitation. In their effort to justify their continued control, however, modern communist governments have strengthened their nationalism. Marxism has been corrupted by its use as an ideological slogan in many countries and systems which were completely foreign to Marx's original analysis. This leads us to a certain contempt for Marxists today, since they seem to be emotionally, not rationally, motivated. This should not necessarily reflect upon Marx himself. A precise Marxist would say that the economic polarization forces which Marx identified have been delayed by deficit financing, or deficit financing compromises with the pre-revolutionary proletariat, the union's benefits, and unemployment compensation, etc., but that these are all merely postponements of a final reckoning. 
Mind Control, and Mind War. The most recent and sinister concept of determinism resulted from medical and scientific discoveries concerning the physiological functioning of the human brain and its influence upon, if not complete control, over the individual sensory perceptions and emotions. Fictional illustrations such as the book film The Manchurian Candidate portray human subjects becoming mindless robots through psychological and physiological brainwashing. Classic determinism, as surveyed above, does not involve manipulation of humans' physiology. Rather, it proposes different scenarios of external natural forces which influence human behavior. All humanity can do is identify and attempt to live with such forces. Mind control thus not only introduces intentional artificiality into the human equation, but indeed attempts to do so pervasively and powerfully as to overcome any and all behavioral influences. As of this writing, fortunately, all such mind control experiments and programs have quote-unquote failed. The principal reason for this being the conductor's complete and continuing failure to understand the actual construction and functioning of the human brain's architecture. My companion book, Mind War, explains this architecture and why it again, fortunately, renders Manchurian candidate ambitions quite impossible. Mind War also explains what psychological and physiological influence of humans is possible and practical and proposes a constructive and ethical telos for such an application. Indeed, it is precisely the telos basis of Mind War which illustrates and exemplifies why telos is the essential key to evolution and exaltation of human consciousness towards MS, Mindstar, Divinity, and Immortality. Absent such telos, the human race has nothing in its future as in its past but mechanistic sufferings, futilities, and eventual inexorable extinction. Chapter 7. Death Demystified. To die, to be really dead, that must be glorious. Count Dracula. From terror to transformation. The obvious fulcrum of the concepts and processes addressed throughout Mindstar is the phenomenon of transition from physical to metaphysical human existence. What is commonly called death, since death is not in fact death in the sense of a cessation of self-conscious existence. This chapter shines a harsher, more explicit light upon it, to explode and to vanquish the conventional ignorant fear conditioning so deeply and constantly ingrained in human beings. Throughout their incarnate phase of self-aware existence, death fear is a physical body instinctive, easily the strongest and most unrelenting of all such emotions, and validating and rejecting it is one thing intellectually, but quite another viscerally. Even the most advanced and enlightened initiates can suddenly find themselves stricken and terrified by it. So this is not a read-enjoy-relax chapter of Mindstar, it is a rude awakening, a shock that will accompany you henceforth, very much a matrix red pill. Its discourse ranges from the conventional to the extraordinary, pushing the limits of the reader's coherence and or confidence in that of the author. 
We're going out on some limbs here, but won't need a saw. As with other super-rational concepts in Mindstar, which thereby are not reconcilable by outward universe exclusive laws of logic, you will need to apply the analytical tools of anamnesis, the dialectical precision of which will enable you to recognize truth when you see it, an exercise not of faith or trust, but gnosis, non-initiate humanity habitually regards life as being either a purely physical universal function or as a two-layered physical body with a non-physical metaphysical soul, which may or may not survive the body's physical cessation of metabolism and subsequent decomposition. The blue-pilled former is termed materialism. The red-pilled later is termed idealism. Who owns your body? The protagonist of the Matrix assumed he did, until he awakened to discover it attached to a variety of parasitical mechanisms. Let's find out what you might be hooked up to. In the 1999... Oh, yeah. That's just uh, the, the note, sorry. State. Externally in society, you know who you are by documentary credentials, birth certificate, passport, licenses, diplomas, marriage divorce certificates, and eventually death certificates. All these are issued by various levels of the nation state of which you are a citizen, in other words, to which you belong. It is the state that recognizes and validates you, and it legally claims both the responsibility to protect you and the prerogative to kill you. You and others may call yourself by many names, but it is the state which records and authenticates your official permanent name. The state stipulates what officials, agencies, physicians, teachers, parents, and morticians can do to and with your body. It can punish you if you try to escape its control as well as deny your attempt to enter it. From birth to death, you are enveloped in a matrix of its laws and customs, conditioning, controlling, and limiting your freedom of communication and actions. Despite all of the above, an individual would probably argue that consciousness is untouched and unreachable by the state and that this is the final decisive establishment of bodily ownership. Religion Life is a divine gift. Conventional religions all maintain, and intelligent humans especially so, given them dominion over the lesser flora, fauna, and features of God's creation. Thus, functions like mating. Sex and birthing are held to be sacred, and any interference with them is sinful. The killing of non-human life is permissible precisely because it highlights the special status of human life. The killing of other humans is usually endorsed as a self-serving collaboration with religion-hosting states, but once again, individual non-state murder is not. Most significantly, killing oneself is condemned as the greatest of all sins. It is ultimate insult to God and to reject His gift of life to you, since it is a life, an image, that emulates His own Killing yourself is killing God by proxy, as illustrated by humans crucifying and killing God as Christ. 
and Judeo-Christianity lost its literal hold on educated humanity. When the European Enlightenment social contract theorists contended more cynically that the church frightened adherents into continuing their miserable lives simply to extract tribute and toil from them for longer. All disobedience, heresy, infidelity led inevitably to eternal damnation in hell. Only the most abject surrender of oneself throughout life might possibly result in Christ's mercy, certainly not owed by the state. Profession Some professions expect the individual to subordinate his life to their success, mission, or image. The most obvious of these is military service, whether state, mercenary, or revolutionary. You are expected to risk and he goes, in the United States, for instance, the military forces all include chaplains from all the profane religious institutions. As commissioned officers with government-provided, funded facilities, and bald disregard to the Constitution's establishment of religion and prohibition within the state. The principal mission of chaplains is to convince soldiers that human injury and murder ordered by the state is not a sin in the eyes of God. Religions provided such chaplains include Judaism. Catholicism, and Protestant Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And if necessary, sacrifice your life for the mission and cause of the state. Decorations for valor are awarded as much as such personal risk and injury and death as for killing the enemy. In other professions, including religions, martyrdom is not only permitted but admired and rewarded. If a minister kills himself, he's damned to hell. But if he is killed ex officio, he might well be canonized as a saint. Psychiatry. The medical avocation of psychiatry has its own central article of faith that any continuation of physical life, no matter how painful or restrictive, is preferable to death. And if a sufferer contemplates suicide, this is a mental illness and must be enticed, argued, threatened, drugged, and padded, cell, imprisoned away. You, Your body ceases to be your property the moment you want to get rid of it. Family. If you are a member of a family, other members of it will claim all are part of your body according to you and your position. As a minor, your body is controlled by your parents who are subject to state punishments if they do not control it as allowed. If you marry as a husband, your wife and relatives expect you to procreate as well as provide. If you marry as a wife, your body is instantly subordinate to reproduction and the care of children. Suicide within a family is traditionally regarded as a betrayal of family obligations, a social shame to the family name and reputation and even criminal culpability of other members who didn't prevent it. Exclusive of self-serving exploitation, of course, there may also be the factor of sincere, romantic, and or familiar love. Of course, persons generally and purely in love characteristically don't think of it in property terms. But if one is contemplating personal incarnation options, love for other incarnates is certainly going to be of critical and even determinant importance. Familiars 
If your family extends to members who are furred, feathered, finned, or scaled, what do you do with your body must take what happens to theirs into special consideration. Implicitly, neither they nor you would see this as a question of ownership, but certainly of a bond, a friendship, and an obligation that goes beyond words. Yourself. What the above recitation highlights is that as intuitively as you assume your body to be yours exclusively, this is true only insofar as you're the only one inside of it. Indeed, even this is a bit of broad brush, uh, broad brush, sorry. Biologically, science estimates that each human body contains about 39 trillion living bacterial cells. So where the OU is concerned, it's more accurate to visualize a very large crowd of critters who've somehow all decided to be you for at least a little while. As far as the metaphysical realm of the Mind Star and the Temple of Set are concerned, the Egyptians detected and identified only eight of you and in considering that the 39 trillion cells each possess their own life one still has dealt with the mystery of the body's life field dictating the disintegration and regeneration of all proteins in the body every 160 days materialism the big black sack. Since materialism holds that the human being is nothing more than a haphazard temporary coagulate of physical matter and energy, consciousness of self is nothing more than an illusion which ceases the moment the body stops functioning and decomposes. Hence, whether this illusion is completely accidental or constructed and emplaced, our prior supernature, uh, supernature intelligences uh, is also a non-topic of permissible discussing. The only respectable assumptions are atheism and agnosticism. The conceit of atheism. Some materialists are so fanatic in their certainty that they uh, are only freak persistent electrochemical accidents. Everything else in the entire universe must be accidental too. Thus they can f they confidently deny not just any creative genius behind the subatomic interfunctional complexity of the universe, i.e. a nature spirit, but the uniform and continuous enforcement of any natural law, everywhere from millisecond to millisecond. The odds against the entirety of this are prima facie. Impossible. So atheists handle this annoyance by refusing to discuss it. Questions as to why, if one's personal consciousness is nothing more than a freak electrical collusion in the brain, this illusion should continue with a consistent memory for the individual's entire lifetime and not every day be a new man. Conventional materialism had no way to explain the extraordinary organization, integration, and replacement of the human body's cellular and molecular structure. Materialists grappled with this crucial problem by simply ignoring it. Such a freak accidental electrical coincidence occurs in every other human brain. Insistent that he is nothing more than his electrical illusion, 
the atheist has nothing but nothing to anticipate when the electrical switch is turned off. The proverbial big black sack of extinction of nothingness. The absence of any supernatural morality, including a posthumous reward, punishment for incarnate behavior. Makes sense, atheists that are much more dangerous to others as they are motivated only by sensual gratification. Some may, of course, derive pleasure from kindness, but others, just as whimsically, may enjoy depravity, torture, and murder. Indeed, the entire spectrum of sensual gratification has nowhere a moral governor. The overriding goal is relief from boredom, of being forced to confront the futility of meaningless consciousness. Emperor Ming the Merciless, Cletus, I am bored. What plaything can you offer me today? Cletus, an obscure body in the SK system, your majesty. The inhabitants refer to this planet as Earth. Ming, how peaceful it looks. He activates a console and watches as earthquakes, floods, etc. start to occur. They both laugh. Most effective, your majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Ming, later. I like to play with things a while before annihilation. Flash Gordon, 1980. H.P. Lovecraft himself, an exceptionally reflective atheist, was only too aware of this plight, highlighting it in his story, The Hound. Weird with the commonplaces of prosaic worlds, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale. St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating unway. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in the time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huseman's were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course, which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity. That hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. Fortunately for Earth's climatologists, as well as the tranquility of cemeteries and mausoleums worldwide, Today's atheists sublimate their ghoulish desperations for ultimate boredom relief by the ongoing catharsis of multimedia zombie orgies, wherein the absence of a higher life after death is replaced by a decidedly lower one. At least the extinction-fearful atheist consoles himself continuation as a rotting cannibalistic cadaver is better than the big black sack. An ambulance responds to a 911 call at a cemetery overrun by cannibalistic zombies. The paramedics are instantly attacked and devoured. Instead, a few minutes later, a police car responds to investigate. Two policemen are also attacked and eaten. The timidity of agnosticism. Agnostics seek to avoid the pretentious arrogance of avowed atheists by maintaining there is not enough information to answer the designed and forced question one way of another. 
just as glaringly this, but begs the question because the intricacies and consistencies, the realities of every bit as visible and inescapable to them. All they demonstrate by their refusal to confront the question is their fear that the obvious answer will doom them to creationist ridicule and supercilious atheistic circles. Thus they succeed only in emulating ostriches, burying their hands in philosophic sand. The prison of physics. The annihilistic masochism of atheists and agnostics is both understandable and unavoidable. For the simple caustic reason that the science of OU physics is a priori restricted to inquiries into the how, never the why. It is a tabulation of effects, not causes. Indeed, there are no instruments to seek or identify cause, and a claimant to causality would be ridiculed and ostracized from the reputable academic professional community to are for indelicate heresies. Such is the fate of the iconoclast from Galileo Galilei and Robert Fulton to William Reich, Nikola Tesla, Townsend, Brown, Oscar Klein, et al. What kind of instrument could detect or measure the metaphysical? After all, instruments are normally constructed with universal sensors and readouts. One candidate might be the sensory deprivation tanks of John Lilly precisely because their function is to suppress the body's universal senses, but this blurs the line between verifiable reality and mental hallucination. The disciple of Redesthesia, our biogeometry, attempts to bridge the physical and metaphysical, but at this time has yet to establish verifiable, reliable results. Just as, unfortunately, fringe science is notorious for being the stock and trade of unscrupulous stage magicians seeking commercial reward beyond ethical entertainment, several obscure detection capabilities and thresholds of the human consciousness and subconscious mind are detailed as psychological controls, psychons, in mind war. Without exception, of course, there is the universal phenomena. Any representation or application of them as metaphysical would be erroneous or fraudulent in the physical world. The Taboo of Metaphysics Ostensibly, the antipathy of physics for metaphysics dates to the European Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries. Not surprisingly, reacting to incitational Christianity, previously condemnation of science, and scientists as a threat to the Holy Bible. Admitting God as the creator of the universe would also imply his continued presence and willful discretion to change or ignore its established consistencies, e.g. by miracles, if we were ruled out altogether. Miracles and miraculous explanations for mysterious events would be moot. Ironically, religionists have never attempted to argue the active presence of God per the existence and enforcement of the universal NL, which would seem to be the most obvious and powerful contention. Rather, they have sought evidence of God's existence and power in claimed NL natural law violations. Miracles such as the parting of the Red Sea, the changing a person to a pillar of salt, and Jesus walking on water. The obvious absurdity of such vaudevillian dramatics served only to ridicule religion all the more, whereas an argument based on the evident omnipresence and omnipotence of natural law would have had quite the opposite effect.
and adequate alphabetics. Human language, especially in its most modern form, has played a crucial and often underappreciated part in the marginalization and mythification of metaphysics. The few terms that exist such as soul, spirit, essence, aether reality, psyche, the supernature, and of course magic are so woolly, so encumbered with obsolescence and triviality as to render them vague at best, silly at worst, in serious discussions of these matters. The most sophisticated and educated metaphysicist struggles to express themselves, at least in English, because the words to do so adequately simply do not exist. 6. Symbolism. In certain antiquities such as those of Egypt and runic northern Europe, both written and inscribed communications went well beyond the merely alphabetic and phonetic to the acronymic. Thus, a single hieroglyphic can represent an entire concept, and a word of several hieroglyphics, a statement which in modern alphabetics would require one or more sentences. Phonetic modern English utilizes 26 alphabetic characters, by contrast, there are more than 2,000 Egyptian hieroglyphics, which can be used and mixed from the phonetic to the acronymic. The study of the hieroglyphics beyond the syllogistic limitations of modern alphabetics and languages to their full and frequently metaphysical meaning was one of the most important discoveries of René Charles de Lubitz and articulated in his Du Symbol et de la Symbolique, Collection, Architecture et Symbols Sacres. This methodology is known as symbolique in French and symbolism in English. Similarly, breakthrough works has been done in ancient northern European runes by Dr. Stephen Flowers in his Fothark and later analytical books. An excellent illustration of symbolism analysis may be seen in Bram Stoker's The Jewel of the Seven Stars. When the jewel in question found grasped in her seven-fingered right hand when the Exi dynasty Quinteris tomb was discovered in the Valley of the Sorcerers, on a lining of white satin lay a wondrous ruby of immense size, almost as big as the top joint of Margaret's little finger. It was carven. It could not possibly have been its natural shape, but jewels do not show the work of the tool into the shape of a scarab, with its wings folded and its legs and feelers pressed back to its sides. Shining through its wondrous pigeon's blood color were seven different stars, each of seven points, in such positions that they reproduced exactly the figure of the plow. There could be no possible Mistakes as to this in the mind of anyone who had ever noted the constellation in it were some hieroglyphic figures cut with the most exquisite precisions. Mr. Trollony turned <coughs> it over so that it rested on its back. The reverse was no less wonderful than the upper, being carved to resemble the underside of the beetle. It too had some hieroglyphic figures cut into it. As you see, said Mr. Trollony, there are two words, one at the top and the one underneath. The symbols on the top represent a single word of one syllable prolonged with its determinatives. The Egyptian language was phonetic, and the hieroglyphic symbol represented the sound. The first symbol here, the ho, means myrrh, and the two-pointed ellipsis is the prolongation of the r, myrrh er er. The sitting figure with the hand to its face is what we call the determination of thought and the role of papyrus that of the abstraction of thought. Thus we get the word myrrh, love, in its abstract, general, and fullest sense. 
This is the Heka, which can command the upper world. The symbolism of the world on the reverse is simpler, though the meaning is more obtuse. The first glyph is the men abiding, and the second heart. So we get abiding of heart, and in our language, patience. This is the Heka to control the lower world. The jewel with its mystic origins in which the Queen Terra held under the hand of the sarcophagus was to be an important, probably the most important factor in her resurrection. From the first, I seemed to instinctively realize this. I kept the jewel within my safe whence no one could extract it, not even Queen Terra herself as her call, her incorporeal apparition. Orwellian Unwords George Orwell realized the subtle yet decisive power of language in his classic novel 1984, in which political heresy being systematically eliminated by the destruction of words by which one conceives or expresses it, don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thoughts? In the end, we will make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words to which to express it. While the more sensational and dramatic propaganda targets, the conscious perceptions, the far stronger conditioning takes place subconsciously. For example, the term democracy means one thing to a capitalist and another to a socialist or communist. Such patterns form an individual's pillars of reality, identified and changed only slowly with considerable difficulty, if at all. As of the Mind Trilogy's publication, the educational process and environment is technologically advanced in countries, undergoing further changes consequent to digital media, which influences both subconscious and conscious thinking and audio-visual processes faster, more intuitive, and less personally deliberative than previously performed. Sacking the Sack Mindstar now proposes to free both atheists and agnostics from the glum, big black sack prospect and without recourse to irrational faiths. As discussed previously herein, the Egyptians apprehended the universe as the physical manifestation of conceived principles, the Nidaru. These were symbolized as animals, Arthurianthropes, and remember that in this context, symbolism is an ideographic representation of a concept beyond mere alphabetics or, for the matter, simple pictures. Accordingly, the Nidaru could just as easily be and were called the Forms by Pythagoreans and Plato, the Asir by the ancient Northern Europeans, or Anwar by J.R.R. Token. What these aren't are the cartoon gods as moderns brought up on soap opera mythologies are accustomed to imagining and dismissing them. In these and other semblances, the Nidaru are pluralized for a more refined interpretation of the OU complexities and interactions between markedly different phenomenons. Lazier and simpler minds could and did describe the collective principles as a conglomerate, e.g. God. Does the universe require a prior imagination, creative agency to bring it into existence? Consider its size and complexity, which everywhere functions... Precisely and harmoniously, a gigantic machine of an almost infinite number and variety of working parts, 
If the mechanism per se is not impressive enough, note that everywhere its components, both severally and various levels of grouping, have strong aesthetic aspects. In short, it is not just functional, but beautiful in every sensory detectable medium. It is a work of art as well as science. Absent the Nidoru, proposing that a machine like this could just appear in function by nothing more than sheer random accident is not just slightly, but overwhelmingly beyond statistical possibilities. The universal machine is characterized not only by its intricacy, but by the consistency of that intricacy. Predictable regularity, which, as humans have cataloged it, is collectively called natural law, nature from the Egyptian word neater. So we confront a universe which not only exists in its intricacies and aesthetics, but continues to do so strictly and inductively, endlessly. Such consistency requires external enforcements and internal reinforcements. A closed mechanism cannot enforce itself any more than it can originally construct itself. So the proof of the existence and power of the Nidoru is and requires nothing more than the understanding of nature. Temporal incarnate humans are witnesses to natural law. So there is no question about its existence. The matter of how the universe originally came into being as a bit dicier. And here we are talking about the origin of the entire natural law mechanism, not just the metagalactic assortment of space and time. We see at the moment, arguably the apotheosis of arrogance rejecting, rejecting a universe aesthetic was John Paul Sartre's nausea in which the protagonist or Quentin is nauseated by the mere existence of material objects. As discussed in the time sections of Find Far, the fourth dimension is simply a measurement of change between the 3D locations of two or more objects in forces. Hence, any variety of 4D yardstick can be devised and used within and among universal components, such as human schedules in terms of Earth's orbit around the Sun. However, things become more problematic when trying to measure the 4D of the entire universe because of at least one 3D externality is required, and none has been found to date. Indeed, most astrophysicists cannot wrap their heads about any kind of 3D universe externality that would just not expand the parameters of the existing universe. In other words, it is impossible to date the universe. But what's even more fun is that we don't need to. The notion of time as a fixed unidirectional linear progression is nothing more than a myth Certain primitive religions whose storylines require a start, action, and end, usually in terms of sin, punishment, and atonement, are worse punishments. Absent such a threatening storyline, there is no actual need for a universal beginning or ending. It simply is and extends infinitely into both its past and its future. Or more accurately, those would be both measureless concepts needing both one another and having no reality of either. Correspondingly, the OU Nidoru, the universal Nidoru, don't require definitive, definitive terms such as beginning or ending of anything. 
The implications of this brief preamble being that as the essence, natural law, of the universe is external to it, so the essence of the mind star or soul of an incarnate universal human is necessary higher and external to their physical body. Their relationship is inescapable. If each universal body's coherence and continuation is an integral part of being maintained. Summarily, the actual authentic you is not a temporary universal device that is just a manifestation or a tangible tool. You exist in the super-universal realm of the Nidaru, which is literally beyond time and space since those are 4Ds limited to within the universe. That you will continue past the discarding of your temporary universal body is thus not even a matter for debate. The only question are what you can and elect to do with yourself after your universal disconnection with your physical body. Thank you very much. Been the Beyond Top Secret Texan reading Mind Star. This is by Michael Aquino. This is the third reading of it. Thank you all very much. Please listen to the first two readings of it to better understand it. And please tune in for next week's broadcast of the fourth reading of Michael Aquino's Mind Star. Thank you very much. Namaste and Shalom. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. God bless you and your families. Peace out.